as we're beginning a new uh, series that we're going to be going through for the next uh, several weeks here, nine or ten weeks, maybe with a break here or there because of some other scheduling things. But over the next nine or ten weeks, we'll be looking at several items that um, I'm kind of calling basics for the Christian. Um, if you think about what, what's essential to the life of a Christian, we're going to kind of hit nine or ten things that um, really should be that we should have a good understanding of. And what better place to start than with salvation? We're going to be in, not really going to camp in any one uh, passage this morning. Um, this morning's going to be more of a more of a thirty thousand foot flyover, broad spectrum. Uh, we can't get into all the weeds this morning of uh, the 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 details of all the little theological nuggets, but we can. Um, get a better understanding or good understanding of what we see here. Now, if you've been with us on uh, Wednesday nights, there'll probably be a little bit of overlap. Some things are going to sound familiar, but we're not going to be doing a, we're not going to be doing everything. I'm not preaching through that book, that uh, that curriculum that we're going through. But it's um, there's going to be some overlap, and just because of the nature of these things, there's going to be some overlap there. But this morning, with this study of basics for the Christian, we're starting with salvation. And really, we have to start by asking, what is salvation? Salvation is a big part of the Bible. And we find many references and words of salvation, of salvation both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are a number of dif- different Hebrew and Greek words used to reflect salvation. The Old Testament uses salvation or deliverance language for both physical, with both a physical and spiritual meaning in it. Um, Many Old Testament prophecies center on the Messiah who would bring salvation, while the New Testament almost exclusively uses words uh, of salvation used in reference to rescue from the power and dominion of sin, almost exclusively in that spiritual sense where a lot of what we see in the Old Testament tends to be on physical salvation um, or um, referring to this life versus the spiritual side of things. Well, if scripture is filled with references to salvation, there must be a need for salvation. And that's really gonna be our first section here is the need for salvation. The need for salvation. Well, what is the need of salvation? Well, it's sin. The Bible stresses people's need of salvation, and that need comes from the universal problem of sin. We find this discussed in passages like Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we all are like an unclean thing, and and all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. That one you see, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. There's nothing good that we can do. We won't get into it, but that reference there of filthy rags is more graphic than just a dirty piece of cloth. But there's no good thing that we can do. 
All our righteousness, our filthy rags, we fade as leaves. We see this sin reference also uh, in passages like Romans 3, 10 and 11, which we, we would all know fairly well. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. So the Bible talks about this universal problem of sin with humanity. But what is sin, though? The New Unger Bible's dictionary has a simple definition, and it, and it puts it this way. The underlying idea of sin is that of law and a lawgiver. The lawgiver is God. Hence, sin is everything in the disposition and purpose and conduct of God's moral creatures that is contrary to the expressed will of God. That's, a, that's their simple definition. <laughs> okay. So the idea, the under, what he's getting at is the, the underlying idea is that there is a law, which means there is a law giver. Sin is attitude, purpose, action of God's moral creatures. Creatures, creatures made by God. Well, the only moral creatures in this life is our humans. And there are, I say that, as I say that, Angels are, had a moral choice, but humanity is what we're talking about here. The attitude, the purpose, the conduct, the actions of God's moral creatures, humanity, any of those, those items, conduct, uh, disposition, attitude of us as moral creatures of God that is contrary to his express will is sin. Now he references several passages, Romans 3.20, Romans 4.15, James 4.12 and 17. But the Bible, of course, has an answer for this as well. What is sin? Well, the Bible also gives us a definition. In 1 John 3 verse 4, it says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. So again, you still see that idea of God has given a law and sin is going contrary to or acting without. So human beings are by nature, since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, we are sinners. We don't seek God. We don't honor God. We do whatever we please. Ephesians 2, 3 says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and whereby nature children, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We commonly hear today that we should follow or listen to our hearts, and that humanity is basically good. God says something different in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Listen to your heart. The Bible says your heart's desperately wicked and deceitful. So listening and following our heart especially if we, as an unsaved person, as someone who is, who is still in sins, 
that's not going to help us at all. That will just continue in doing these desires and these things that are against God. A good Old Testament verse that summarizes the sinfulness and rebellion of hu- by humans against God is Isaiah 53, 6. A no- number of us probably memorize this, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But that first part of the verse, we have all gone astray. We have turned everyone. Everyone has turned to their own way, not following God. This state of selfish rebellion against God, our creator, has a couple of effects. First is bondage. One effect of sin is that it enslaves the sinner. Jesus, when speaking to some Jews that, that had believed in him, questioned about how abiding in his word, of following what he was saying in his teachings, would bring freedom. He said, how can, we, how can we bring freedom? We're children of Abraham. We aren't enslaved to anyone. Jesus explains in a very succinct statement in John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Well, we just looked at passages that said, if you're a human, you're a sinner. So we're all slaves of sin. Simply committing a sin enslaves us outright to sin. Peter, speaking about false teachers, luring people away from the gospel, says this in in 2 Peter 2, verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Even these false teachers that are luring people away from the gospel, they're proclaiming liberty, but they themselves are enslaved to their sin and are leading those, luring those away from the gospel further into sin and further into the bondage of sin. There are other passages that describe sinners as slaves to sin. Many like Romans 6, 6 to 7, and 16 to 18, as well as Colossians 1, 13, to speak of being freed from sin through salvation. Paul is bringing out in in those passages that once there's been salvation, you are freed from the bondage of sin. So those ones are kind of a negative example of being enslaved to sin. But our sin nature enslaves us to commit more and more sins. We think we are free, but we are slaves. We think we aren't doing any harm or only doing what makes us happy. But our sin nature is pulling the strings and leads us down the road to death and destruction. I came across this week in doing some study, um, the reference to a... uh, Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale called The Red Shoes. I wasn't familiar with it. I read through the summary that I came across and then I read, uh, read the story. 
And in this fairy tale, Anderson uh, talks about his, the main character is is uh, named Karen, a lovely poor girl who dreamed of having a pair of red shoes. She was poor. She really didn't have anything nice. She had wood shoes that um, a, a shoemaker's wife took pity on and, and put some leather pat, red patches on there. But it wasn't the nicest thing. So she is, becomes obsessed and dreaming about having a nice pair of red shoes. After her mother's death, she went to live with a wealthy woman. And this guardian, her guardian nurtured her in the atmosphere of the church. Now being Scandinavian uh, and reading the story, um, we're going with a Lutheran type of church. Um, but, but she was nurtured in the atmosphere of the church. And she comes to, and she's ready, she's gone through the classes, she's ready to be confirmed. And her foster mother purchases new clothing for the occasion and buys her a, a new pair of shoes. Though she didn't think she was buying red shoes, they, she thought that that would be uh, inappropriate for the time. And the lady could, yeah, they're, they're nice, shiny shoes. And so she just bought them because her, her sight was failing. But she had these pair of red shoes that she had been wishing for. And they attracted a good amount of attention. She wore them to church. And it was referenced as she was taking uh, the cup during that confirmation um, communion. She thought that the shoes were silhouetted in the chalice from which she sipped the communion. Out on the street following this she began to dance. The shoes caused her to start dancing. And try as she might, she couldn't stop. Her foster mother finally managed to get the shoes taken off of, off of her feet and hid them. But as the story continues, after the guardian, after she passes, she finds the, Karen finds the shoes and wears them and begins to dance. And she begins to dance throughout the streets, out of town, finally into the woods. She becomes frightened. She encounters an angel who says to her, dance in your red shoes. Dance on until you are pale and cold and your flesh shrivels. She pleads for help. She calls for mercy, but the shoes lead her away from the angel so she doesn't hear what the angel says. But she goes through and exhausted, she finds the home of the village executioner and begs him to, remove, to cut off her feet. He obliges, but the shoes dance off. She, she is now compelled to use crutches for the rest of her life, but she was happy to be free of that obsession. It goes, and there's a little bit of a story of redemption and salvation here. She, she actually moves in with the local pastor and family and in the parsonage, and though she's she kind of gets right with God there before she dies. Um, but she's free. She's happy to be free from her obsession over these shoes. Anderson is kind of giving in this fantasy story of the red shoes that every person, regardless of age, ambition, station, or schooling, or standing, owns at least one pair of red shoes. Any absorbing idea, anything that shackles an individual, monopolizes his or her time, 
warps the mind and shrivels the soul is an obsession. Good or bad, obsessions are shining red shoes and their sins. And like sins, even if it's something somewhat decent, it can become an obsession and we can continues that sinful desire and we, out, we live out these sinful things. So just the way Karen was enslaved to these shoes, we are enslaved to sin. Other than enslaving ourselves to continue in sin, our sin nature separates us from God. So we see not only a bondage to sin, but a separation as an effect of sin. Separation from God really is the penalty of sin. In Genesis 3, 22 to 24, God expels Adam and Eve from the garden, from dwelling with him there. They were separated from him. In Revelation 21 through, uh, excuse me, Revelation 21 verse 27 shows that sinners, those not found in the Lamb's book of life, cannot enter the new Jerusalem to dwell with God. In Isaiah 59, God is speaking to the nation of Israel through Isaiah the prophet and points out that the, that the sins of the people have separated them from God. Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins, have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. This separation is most easily seen in Scripture as death. Romans 6.23 calls wages of sin death. Your payment for sin is death. Scripture speaks, though, of two kinds of death spiritual and physical. God warned Adam and Eve that if they disobeyed and sinned, that they would surely die, Genesis 2.17. And when they sinned, they began to die physically, but they immediately died spiritually. And this condition passes on to every human following them. Our human nature is spiritually dead. We see this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Though you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And the moment that we are born, physically born, we begin to die. Even as the body grows to maturity, you are born to death. As sinners, though we live physically, we are spiritually dead. And if we do not come to God for salvation, we will die physically in our sin. And in the future, when God judges those who have never received salvation, they will be punished for eternity, separated from God permanently in the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, and Revelation 21, 8. The lake of fire in those references is known as 
the second death because it is both spiritual and physical. So if that is our need, what's the answer for our need? The answer is salvation. So we have the need for salvation. Now we have the answer is salvation. Well, the answer is found and grounded, first of all, in God's love. In 1 John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 8 tells us, plainly that God is love and that his love for people whom he created and through this love that he created, he provides a way of salvation. God's love connected to salvation is seen in a number of passages. The immediately following context of 1 John, uh, following verse 8 there, is, is verses 9 through 19. And it talks about that. But just to highlight a couple of verses, we see in 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Other passages that make this connection are Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John three sixteen and 17. As another one, a famous one. And as an, as an Old Testament example of God's love displayed in an act of salvation, of deliverance, we see in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 8. Now there, Moses is explaining to the Hebrews, the next generation, before they go into the land, he gives the law again, and he reminds them here in this section. And just highlighting a couple of verses, Deuteronomy 7 Verses 7 and 8, and he tells the people, he says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It's not that you were a great big nation, but you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. It's not because you're a great nation that he loves you. He loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That, he, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Because of God's love, he provides a way of salvation. Very physically with the nation of Israel out of Egypt. But even more importantly, or just as important in one way in some ways is his love for all people that a way of salvation has been provided that we might have fellowship with him so it is salvation is founded in god's love but secondly it is not through human works 
It is vitally important that we remember that the answer of salvation is not that we must earn salvation. Because of our sin in nature, we cannot do anything to earn favor with God. To earn grace, despite what other religions and even other denominations of Christianity say. Remember Isaiah 64, 6, called our, what it called our righteous deeds? Filthy rags. Other verses that tell us that we cannot earn salvation are Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In Romans 3, 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. We see other passages, Romans 4, 1 to 3, Romans 5, 1 and 2, Galatians 2, 16 to 21. 2 Timothy 1.9 and Titus 3.5, a verse we, that we read earlier this morning, not by works of righteousness that we have done, because our righteousness is our filthy rags. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Then if we can't earn a salvation, how does it come? Well, we sort of answered that as we discussed human works here. But salvation is based on God's grace. God's grace, unmerited favor, is the basis of salvation. Salvation is given, offered by grace alone. When by faith alone we accept we are saved. The New Testament is pretty clear and direct about this with passages such as Romans 3, 22 to 24. There we read, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Ephesians 1, 5 to 8, having predestined us to adoption by sons, as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will and to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. We see in other places, Ephesians 2, 4 to 10, 1 Timothy 1, 14 through 15, and even the passage we read this morning, Titus 3, 4 to 7. But another part of this is Christ. Just as God's love is why salvation is offered, the work of salvation was done by Jesus Christ. Salvation is not possible without Christ. The New Testament also makes this abundantly clear. We see this in places like Acts uh, 4, 10, and 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man now stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which became the chief cornerstone. Stone. Nor is there salvation in any 
other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And in places like Romans 5, 9 and 10, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And there are other passages, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, 1 Timothy 1, 15, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, Titus 3, 5 to 7 again, Hebrews 7, 24 to 25, and 1 John 4, 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Without Christ and the work he did for salvation, the only one who could do work, salvation would not be possible. Jesus Christ came as the Savior and he died in our place to pay for our sin so that we could have salvation. And that is primarily through Jesus's death. The sufficiency of Jesus's death allows us to be washed, cleansed from our sins, and thus receive salvation. We read in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that, we might, that he might bring us to God, putting to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Other passages would include John 17, 1 to 4, Galatians 1, 3 to 4, Ephesians 2, 4 to 10, and 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. There we read, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. We also read in Hebrews 10, 10, but that while we have been but that while we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Christ's death was the final and sufficient payment for sins. And only through his blood do we find forgiveness and thus salvation. So we've looked at the need. We have looked at the answer. The last is the call to salvation. The New Testament is filled with examples of the call to salvation. This call has been extended for at least the last 2,000 years. We see it prevalent in John three seventeen and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Later in that same passage, verse 36, he who believes in the son has everlasting life and he who does not believe the son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. We see the call of salvation in other passages, Acts 3, 19 and 16, verse 31, as well as Romans 10, 9 and verse 13. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Scripture is clear that each person must make his own, his or her own decision about trusting in Christ for salvation. Have you? 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 reads, working together with him then, we appeal to you, not to re- we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The only way to receive salvation is to accept the call and believe. While salvation requires no work on our part, it does require repentance and faith. Repentance is our acknowledging and turning from our sin to God, seeking forgiveness. And faith is simple belief that Jesus is the Son of God who willingly died on the cross without sin for our place, in our place. So what is salvation? Well, we see a summary of what we just briefly walked through, worked through in Unger's Bible Dictionary. There we read, it is freely offered to all men, but is conditioned upon repentance and faith in Christ. Salvation proceeds from the love of God, is based upon the atonement wrought wrought by Christ, is realized in forgiveness, regeneration, and sanctification, and culminates in the resurrection and glorification of all true believers. When John Newton was still a captain of a slave ship, he conducted worship twice every Sunday. We don't like to talk about this part of his testimony, but he continued to be part of the slave trade even after he came to Christ. It took him some time to to leave that that lifestyle. Because apparently while he still captained the slave ship, he apparently saw no conflict between the slave trade and being a Christian. And he didn't for a while. But that said, this man who would eventually write that hymn, Amazing Grace and Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, when he was 82, said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the reminder that we have and that we can see your truths of salvation throughout all of Scripture in different ways. And though we've only briefly touched on elements here today, just looking at an overview of things, I pray for those that would be here that may not know, know you as Savior, whether they are four or 104. Father, I pray that even through running through this topic this morning, that your spirit will be at work, that your word will be touching hearts, 
and that you would draw to salvation those whom you have called. Father, for those of us that hear that um, have trust in you, I, I, we thank you and praise you for the glories of salvation, for the work of Christ. And we pray that we would be better disciples, that we would continue to grow in our relationship with you. Help us to have a better understanding. We pray that this would be a good reminder to us and, and recall us to what we have been, from what we have been saved, by who we have been saved. And that all this is for your glory. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.